You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, MD, Lost Again, The Navigator, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today, we're going back to the Indian Ocean, and we have quite a bit to catch up on there, so we're not going to waste any time. We're going to jump right in with episode 285, The Great Muhammad. Let's go way back to 1694. Henry Every had yet to set sail. The Nine Years' War was raging at its height, really. You know, we didn't spend much time looking at the Nine Years' War in the West Indies. That's mostly because while there was a ton of privateering going on in the Caribbean, it was mostly just legitimate privateering. One of those legitimate privateers was an English, Jamaican-born sea officer named Captain Lovering. Lovering had some decent successes capturing French prizes in the West Indies, but nothing really worth his time. So he and his crew elected to try their fortunes to the north. In a ten-gun barcalongo called the Servilian, they sailed for Rhode Island. And there, Captain Lovering secured a privateering commission from Governor Walter Clark. He received that commission in 1696. Now, you may remember Governor Walter Clark as the same man who issued commissions to William May and Joseph Farrow, both of whom were sailing with Captain Henry Every. Captain Lovering, though, had no intention to sail for the Indian Ocean. Instead, he headed to Newfoundland, where he had much better luck raiding French shipping. He captured the 15-gun Pelican which he took as a prize ship. With the holds of both his new prize and his Barcalongo full, he headed back to Newport. But when he arrived, he found that Rhode Island was much less accommodating than it had been. While he had been raiding the French off the coasts of Newfoundland, news of Henry Every's capture of the Ganji Sawai had arrived in North America, Governor Clark found himself in some pretty hot water for issuing those two commissions. Now, Captain Lovering had been operating completely within the bounds of the law, 
really doing his patriotic wartime duty, but because he had been issued a commission by Governor Clark, he was scrutinized upon arrival, and eventually he was arrested. The civilian was impounded, and all of his cargo was seized. The men who had been the ship's master of the civilian hired a deputy customs collector, also a local lawyer named Robert Gardiner. And yes, Robert is the brother of John Gardiner. Robert Gardiner, though, managed to secure the Pelican, that 15-gun prize ship, and handed it over to her now rightful captain, Robert Colley. He even obtained a privateering commission on behalf of Captain Colley. Now, that privateering commission had some very specific instructions. Captain Colley was supposed to return some French prisoners of war to their homes in the West Indies. But Captain Colley never had any intention of seeing these instructions through. He had seen just what following the rules would get you, what doing what you were told would bring. His former captain had been arrested for doing his job, so Captain Colley was not going to do his job. But it's not like this was some kind of secret. Everybody in town knew what Captain Colley was planning. A couple of dozen men who had been his comrades on board the Servilian were hanging out in the taverns of Newport telling anyone who would listen that well, he was headed to the Indian Ocean, and they really didn't want to go. Those couple of dozen men were replaced by some of the rougher sort of privateers that called Rhode Island home, including three names that we need to remember. First, there's Joseph Wheeler. He was the Pelican's cooper, or barrel maker. Second, we need to remember the boatswain, a man named Nathaniel North. And third, we should remember a gunner's mate named George Booth. Joseph Wheeler, Nathaniel North, and George Booth. Here, preparing to depart Rhode Island in 1696. Names to remember. Instead of picking up those French prisoners of war and heading for the West Indies, the Pelican set a heading immediately for Africa. Eventually, they rounded the Cape of Good Hope and arrived at Madagascar. This took quite some time. We're into 1697 by this point. The Pelican raided mostly coastal settlements for a while, the Muslim peoples who lived on the coast of mainland Africa, and doing so, they amassed a decent amount of silver. With that silver in hand, they headed for St. Mary's Island. Now, this was the latter-day St. Mary's. Adam Baldridge was gone. A man named Edward Welch had taken his place, but St. Mary's was no longer a haven for those engaged in the slave trade. Well, that's not exactly true. They were no longer permitted to trade in Malagasy people. If they were trading human beings from other parts of Africa, nobody much cared. While they were at St. Mary's, though, something happened. Either about half the crew got pretty terribly sick with some tropical diseases, or about half the crew decided to leave. Maybe it was a combination of the two, it really doesn't matter. The end result is that about half the crew of the Pelican, including Captain Colley, were no longer present at St. Mary's or on board the Pelican. 
The crew that remained was left without a captain. They were at only about half strength, but more pressing than any of that, their water barrels had begun to rot. The cooper, Joseph Wheeler, built all new water barrels with the help of a Malagasy blacksmith. Once those barrels were filled, they sailed to St. Augustine Bay where they recruited some men. In fighting shape now, it was time to hold elections. Joseph Wheeler, who had saved the voyage by building those barrels, was elected the captain. Nathaniel North was elected quartermaster, and George Booth stayed on as the gunner. The pelican headed northwest, toward Johanna, and there she spotted two ships of European design. Upon inspection, Captain Wheeler decided that they were friendly. Now, I need to be honest with you here. The pelican, and really all the pirates we've talked about so far today, aren't going to play much of a role in the rest of the episode. They're going to be around, but when the plunder is finally doled out, the crew of the Pelican is not going to receive a cent. But since they're here, they're part of this story. It's really the best time I could find to introduce Nathaniel North and George Booth, names you do need to remember. The other two pirate ships that the Pelican met up with are going to see some real action and earn some real money. And we know both of these ships already. Shortly before the Pelican arrived at St. Mary's, the drama between Captain Kidd and Captain Robert Culliver played out. When those 96 men abandoned the adventure galley and signed up to sail on the Mocha frigate. And we should remember here just what a fantastic pirate ship the Mocha really was. I rank her alongside the Fancy or the Queen Anne's Revenge. With two hundred men now under his command and a powerful frigate, Robert Culliford left St. Mary's in August 1698. They sailed north and hugged the coast of Madagascar, and then the pirates stopped to have a party. For about a week, the pirates spent their days doing some you know, basic maintenance stuff, sewing sails, swabbing the deck, that kind of thing, but at night... They drank rum and ate roasted meat and danced to the music of drums and guitars. While they were idling, the Mocha was joined by the Soldado. Longtime listeners should remember the Soldado and its captain, Dirk Chivers. But just in case you don't, Chivers, or sometimes Shivers, began his career back in 1695 sailing under Joseph Farrow for Henry Every's great raid. He took part in the 1696 capture of the Ganji Sawai. Later on, Dirk Chivers was one of the pirates that captured a pair of ships near Aden. They then ransomed those ships and sent a message reading, We acknowledge no country, having sold our own. As we are sure to be hanged if taken, we shall have no scruple in murdering and destroying if our demands are not granted in full. Here in 1698, Chivers was the captain of about 120 men on board the Soldado. Together, though the Mocha and the Soldado were a real powerhouse, joining together gave them an opportunity to take a prize of real significance. But when they were joined by the Pelican, 
they became the strongest pirate fleet in the world, the strongest that the world had seen since Henry Every. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And I don't want to blow it out of proportion. It was three ships. They're not going to take on the Navy. But they did have the opportunity to take a prize that none of them could have dreamed of on their own. As it happened, August 1698 did coincide with that yearly Mughal Pilgrim Fleet. Now, the Pilgrim Fleet had an escort of European ships to guard her. After... Henry Every captured the Gunsway in 1696. The East India Company had been required by law to provide that escort. This year, it was led by East India Company Commodore Thomas South. However, his was the only East India Company ship in the escort. See, after the end of the Nine Years' War, as part of the treaty, those duties to guard the Mughal Pilgrim Fleet were shared by the three European powers in India. Commodore South's flagship was accompanied by a Dutch East Indiaman and a French frigate. Those three ships waited in the Red Sea, outside Mocha, for the Pilgrim Fleet to be ready to depart. But there was one ship in Mocha that had no intention of waiting for the fleet or the European escort. And while that ship would have been welcome to join the escort, any ship was, and a lot of private ships did, this ship was not a Mughal pilgrim ship. It wasn't even from India. It was an Ottoman ship out of Jeddah, an Arabian ship. It looks very much like all of the merchants that were on board this Arabian ship took part in the huge festival of trading that went on around the pilgrimage to Mecca, but instead of waiting for the fleet, they were going to depart earlier to, I think, try to corner the market in India. And it's a good plan, kind of. It makes sense, at least. Normally, they would sell the goods from Arabia and the greater Mediterranean world to Indian merchants, and then the Indian merchants would take those back to India where they would sell them again. If you just cut out the middlemen, those Indian pilgrim ships, you could sell the goods for a higher profit, even a higher price than they would make since you got there first. You'd be selling at a premium. It makes financial sense, especially if you have enough goods on board to really make it worth it, and this ship really did. She was a huge vessel, 
and her holds were packed full of goods from all around the Ottoman world and her neighbors. The name of this ship was the Great Mohammed, and the fortunes of hundreds of important people in the Ottoman Empire were tied up in this ship. They had great hopes for her, assuming, of course, that there weren't any pirates around. Meanwhile, the most powerful pirate fleet in the world waited at the Bab al-Mandeb. The Mocha frigate, the Soldado, and the Pelican were waiting in that island chain for the pilgrim fleet to pass by. Now, here's how it was supposed to work. When the fleet passed by, heading out into the Gulf of Aden and the greater Indian Ocean, the pirates would wait for a while and then follow. Eventually, some of the ships in the fleet would begin to flag behind. There would be stragglers. When they fell behind, the pirates would be free to pounce. The escort might spot them, but at that point there would be very little they could do. You know, they couldn't just turn around. And even if they could, they would be leaving the rest of the fleet, the Mughal Pilgrim Fleet, defenseless. But then, before the Pilgrim Fleet passed the Babs, this huge Arabian vessel appeared on the horizon and she was all by her lonesome. Now that's not ideal. If the pirates chased that ship down and managed to capture her, who's to say that the fleet wasn't going to suddenly appear right behind them? The pirates might be engaged in battle or busy looting the holds, when all of a sudden a bunch of heavily armed ships appear and ruin the party. But that ship, all on her own, looked fat and slow and filled with plunder. Captain Culliford called a vote. Now, I'm not really sure exactly how this worked out in this particular fleet. You've got three ships, each with their own captain. In, say, Henry Every's fleet, each of the ships had their own vote to decide whether or not they wanted to engage. But... These three ships reportedly had each agreed, had maybe even vowed or sworn to fight alongside one another to take the greatest prize they could find. That suggests to me that they would have voted as a single body. But I wonder how the command structure worked. Was Captain Culliford a commodore, an admiral of this fleet, or were they still independent bodies? It doesn't really matter, though, because however the voting went down, everyone agreed they were going to take this fat, slow, filled-with-plunder ship that had just appeared. So as the Great Mohammed passed by into the Gulf of Aden, the pirate fleet set sail to catch her up. Now, the pirates did something incredibly clever here. So clever, in fact, that it is almost a certainty that at some point they had sent a boat up the Red Sea toward Mocha to do a little reconnaissance. They knew the makeup of that European escort. Each of the pirate ships raised a flag. The Mocha raised the standard of the East India Company. That was a flag that looked a lot like the American flag. In fact, it was really the inspiration for Old Glory. It had 13 stripes 
alternating red and white, just like the American flag, but in the upper left corner, the canton, there was a King's Jack, basically the modern Union Jack minus the Cross of St. Patrick, representing Ireland. In fact, the East India Company flag was almost exactly the first flag of the American Revolution. It was adopted by Continental troops, many of whom had roots in the East India Company in 1775, a year before America officially declared independence. It represented their desire to form an independent entity, but not to break with the Commonwealth. However, of course, the American revolutionaries would change their tune on that in just a few months. Regardless, that was the flag raised by the Mocha a ship which had formerly been an East India Company frigate. When she raised that flag, she looked just like the English escort under Commodore South. The other two ships in the fleet, the Pelican and the Soldado, raised a Dutch and a French flag, respectively. When the captain of the Great Mohammed, who had spotted these ships coming up on his rear, when he raised his looking-glass, he saw those flags and honestly believed them to be the three European escort ships, and I honestly have to wonder here if he thought, you know, oh no, maybe they've come to warn me about pirates in the region. So the captain furled his sails and waited for the escorts to catch up. By the time he realized his mistake, however, it was already too late. The Soldado and the Mocha moved a lot faster than the Pelican did, and soon enough those two ships way out in front were coming up alongside the Great Mohammed on either side. And it was here, when the crews of these ships were in plain view, that the Great Mohammed realized its mistake. These were obviously not company men, so the captain ordered his gunners to their posts, and they did get off a powerful volley. Great Mohammed was no slouch here. When I said she was huge, I mean this was a giant Arabian ship. She carried about 700 people on board, including sailors, soldiers, and passengers. Add to that all of the trade goods, though, and she only had room for about 40 guns, which isn't insignificant, but it's not overwhelming. This is no ship of the line. Those 40 guns, though, when fired off from both the port and starboard sides of the ship, did damage the two pirates coming in alongside. However, the pirates, well, they were ready for this. I mean, if we're being honest here, the pirates were just better at this kind of thing. Now, I had a whole thing written up, discussing how and why that was the case, but it dove way off into the weeds, talking about why the age of colonization happened, and then it started talking about 3rd century Rome and the crisis thereof and macroeconomics in the 1700s, and it just got real unwieldy. So instead, I'll just say this. The economic power of the Ottoman Empire was at a low ebb in 1698 after losing a war with Austria and then with Iran. On the other hand, Europe was busy extracting all the wealth they could from all over the world. Moreover, the Europeans had just been through a decade of brutal warfare that had almost bankrupted France and Spain and England and the Netherlands. 
The great empires of old Europe spent unbelievable amounts of money and manpower building new and better guns. Guns that fired bigger balls, fired them in a straighter line, and could fire them much faster, and, maybe most importantly, were much less prone to exploding. Not to denigrate the Arabian guns, they made fine bronze cannons in the Ottoman Empire, but they just couldn't keep up with what the Europeans were making by 1698. Literally, the European guns just fired faster, which is a real problem when the guns are firing cannonballs right into the spot where your own gunners need to be to fire back. After the pirates fired their first return volley, the Great Muhammad just wasn't able to properly return fire. The pirates just pummeled her. But of course the pirates didn't want to sink the Great Muhammad. So after they softened the ship up a bit, the pirates threw out their grappling hooks and pulled their ships in close. Now, to their credit, an immense credit really, the great Muhammad chose to resist. Their men were armed with swords and small arms, and they got in position to fight the invaders. And remember here, the great Muhammad, a huge ship, was a lot taller than the two pirate vessels. The pirates were going to have to climb up the side and jump over the rail to get on deck. And if they were to do so in a uh, disorganized fashion, they could be picked off easily. On the same token, however, the defenders really couldn't stand at the rail to fire at the pirates climbing up the side. If they did, the pirates on board their own ships would be able to pick them off at the rail. Instead, the defenders waited near the center of the deck, forming a body of troops facing both sides of the ship because the pirates were coming over from both sides. Meanwhile, the pirates were massing just below the rail, waiting to jump over. Before they do, though, I want to take a second to look at how the pirates were armed. Each of them carried a musket. That's an important part of a pirate's arsenal. In their belt, however, they also had a pistol, a cutlass, and a knife. Which is important considering the tactics they planned on using here. These weapons were to be used in a very specific order. With a roar, the pirates burst over the side of the great Mohammed, and everyone on all sides fired. Now, I've fired black powder muskets. I was a stupid teenager firing old guns with a bunch of hillbillies, and I was not wearing hearing protection. It was, well, it was awesome, but it was also really loud. I'm trying to imagine the sound of somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 muskets discharging all at once, and I'm really having trouble doing so. It would have been deafening. Both pirates and defenders fell to the fire of these muskets. But then a second, smaller volley followed. Once their muskets were spent, the pirates, who held on to their long guns, they drew their pistols and fired again. It was quick and sudden, and for the defenders of the Great Muhammad, it was devastating. But if you were still standing, you did not have time to collect yourself. You were in a melee already. I try to picture that, being there, I mean. You're surrounded by a carpet of dead and dying comrades. You've been splattered with their blood, and more blood is pooling around your feet, you can't hear anything after the volley of musket fire, but think of the smoke 
You haven't thought of the smoke. You can't see anything. But you have your saber raised, nonetheless waiting for the pirates to advance. And then, out of the smoke, a wall of pirates rushes you and your comrades. One of them bashes your sword out of the way, using the butt of his musket, and rams his knife into your neck. You fall to the deck, joining that carpet of dead and dying. Any Arabian sailors left standing were now surrounded by pirates who had their sabers drawn as well. At this point, the pirates could have begun cutting into the defenders had they wished, but they didn't. They waited for just a second. And I don't know about you, but if I were in the shoes of those defending the great Muhammad, I would surrender. And that's what they did. Now, we can be pretty sure that the pirates did not indulge in the same kind of orgy of rape and violence that the men of the fancy had a couple of years earlier. Not to say that they wouldn't have, but these pirates were on the clock. The fleet, the Mughal Pilgrim fleet, complete with their European escorts, well, they could show up at any minute. But even more pressing than that, the pirates on board the Great Muhammad were racing the Pelican. The only ships that were going to get a cut of the spoils were those that had actually taken part in the fighting. And remember, the Pelican was lagging behind. The men of the Mocha and Soldado had to get the prisoners on board the Great Muhammad stowed away and then put themselves in defensive positions. On all three ships, they didn't want to fight, and it's not like the Pelican could really offer up much of a fight anyway, but they wanted it to be absolutely clear when the Pelican did arrive just who had a claim on the riches of the Great Muhammad. When Captain Wheeler finally did make it to the Great Muhammad, he wasn't happy about any of this, but there really wasn't much he or any of his compatriots could do, so they just kind of slinked away. The pirates on board the Great Muhammad had a decision to make, though. They could take the time to inventory all the cargo on board the Great Muhammad, to count it, and assess its value, and then split it up evenly between the two crews, and then transfer all that cargo over to the Mocha and the Soldado. Or, they could claim the Great Muhammad as their own. The pirates from the Soldado transferred all of their big guns, and, you know, personal effects and whatnot, over to the Great Muhammad. All 700 of the prisoners were transferred over to the Soldado. The pirates cut a few of the key ropes on board the Soldado to ensure that the ship wouldn't be able to sail for a while, at least, and then they cut her adrift. The prisoners would be able to repair those sails and make it home eventually, but not fast enough to tell anyone what had happened with time to do anything about it. The crew of the Great Muhammad was split evenly, between men of the Mocha and men formerly of the Soldado, and the crew of the Mocha was split in the same fashion. This was to ensure that nobody got any big ideas about running off with the treasure. And together, these two ships sailed for St. Mary's Island. On that voyage, they began to explore the holds of the Great Mohammed, and a realization began to dawn on the men. They were, all of them, suddenly, 
very, very rich. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a mafia history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly can do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight